Mark chapter 8. I kept reading this passage, and I just kept rolling it around in my mind. We, we talked about this last week, where, where you've come into the middle of a sermon this week. And I thought how easy it would be to read this passage and conclude that really what Jesus needs is some marketing skills. Or maybe he needs a whole marketing team to come in around him. I mean, Peter finally gets it. We've been talking about it from Mark 1 till Mark chapter 8. He finally gets it. We saw he says, you are the Christ. You're the uh, radiance of God's glory. You're the exact representation of God's being. I finally get it. I finally see it. And then Jesus does... Pretty much the last thing you would expect. He says, okay, now that you see it, don't tell anyone. And then to sort of follow up on that, in verse 34, Jesus provides what I think is like a teaser trailer for the upcoming worldwide release of what it looks like to follow Jesus. And this is what he says. He, he kind of grabs their attention And he's saying, you're not going to see all of it now, but let me just give you a little glimpse. If anyone would come after me, yes, yes. Let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. I mean, some of the disciples were businessmen. And somebody in the crowd must have been thinking, you know, Jesus, if you want us to be fishers of men, we, we're going to have to change that bait. I mean, that's not going to bring a lot of people in. How about a coffee bar, a comfortable chair, and it's got a, a cup holder on it? That, that'll really bring them in. That, that'll really swell the crowd. And after you've read verse 34, really, would you choose Jesus to be the teacher of your new believer orientation? You get all your new believers in, and right on the cusp of seeing Christ, then He says to them, hey, you want to come after Me? Deny yourself. Take up your cross. Follow Me. I can just hear that message in the new believer class. Someone saying, lighten up. These people have just seen you. We, we actually want them to come back. How about a few more, God has a great blessing for your life today. That, that seems to really bring them back. And you know, don't define blessing. Just leave it out there sort of undefined so that they can roll around in their minds what blessing that you might feel that they really want. You see, nobody's going to fill in the blank a blessing to mean suffering, rejection, and death. That's just not in our categories. Nobody's going to fill in the blank of blessing with cancer cells, loneliness, job loss, or poverty. Nobody's going to do that. In fact, I would suggest that plenty of Christians would say just the opposite. They would say, you're suffering. You, it just seems like one trial after another seems to befall you. 
And you would look at the person and even if you didn't say it, you would say in your mind something like this. You're doing something wrong. Or or maybe you just don't have very much faith. I mean, really, Paul, people who haven't done anything wrong and people who have a lot of faith, they don't suffer, do they? And I want to say, look at Jesus Christ. The quote on the front of your bulletin is by a guy named David Garland, and it says this. Unlike some contemporary peddlers of the gospel, Jesus does not offer his disciples varieties of self-fulfillment, intoxicating spiritual experiences or intellectual stimulation. He presents them with a cross. He does not invite them to try the cross on for size to see if they like it. He doesn't ask for volunteers, volunteers to carry one for extra credit. This particular demand separates the disciples from the admirers. Disciples must do more than survey the wondrous cross, glory in the cross of Christ, love the old rugged cross. They must become like Jesus in obedience and live the cross. Take up your cross or be a disciple means that you have to matriculate in the school of suffering. We're here in Mark chapter 8. We're in the middle of a sermon from last week. You've just joined us today. And Mark chapter 8 is this pivotal point. We've been focusing on Jesus' identity, and now we're shifting, and we're looking at what's Jesus' mission. And here Christ couldn't have been any clearer. He doesn't sugarcoat it. He doesn't make the path rosy. In fact, he says in here, he's speaking plainly. He's not speaking in parables. He wants everyone to understand that he's going to be rejected, that he's going to suffer, and that he's going to die and rise again. And he's plainly saying, if you want to go the right way, then you're going to have to go in this way as well. See, we talked about last week, many people have the right words, they have the right confession, they know what to say, but they're not on the right path. And the path that Jesus is marking out for us clearly is marked through suffering. Before we get to a couple of these concepts, the first thing I want us to do is to see Jesus. Because when the way gets difficult, when the way is dark, and some of you are in those places, what you and I need to see at those points is Jesus. I think that's why if you look on in Mark chapter 9 you have this transfiguration. I think that's why it's inserted right here. It's like God is saying, "Okay, disciples, you're you're going to need something to keep you going. It's going to get awfully dark as you go down towards Jerusalem to, and towards the cross, and and I want you to see Jesus one more time in this bright and radiant glory. I want you to have that fixed in your mind so when you see Him on the cross, you know He's still the Christ. He's still in control. I want you to see Jesus. When the, when the right way is difficult, when you're losing heart, when you're staggering in your faith, it's, it's not just heaven that you need to see. It's not just thinking, well, all things work together for good. I think you and I need to have a clear picture of Christ. Hear the words from Hebrews chapter 12. 
Let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin which so easily entangles and let us run with perseverance the race, this this way of discipleship, discipleship that's marked out for us. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him. Endured the cross. Scorning at shame. And then he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him. Consider him. It, it means to reckon, to, to think about, to ponder, to meditate on. Jesus, who endured such opposition from sinful men, so that, so that you won't grow weary and so that you won't lose heart. How, what, what do you need in your mind when you're losing heart? You, you need a picture of Christ. We need to see Christ again. And, and hasn't this been one of the themes that we've talked about in the whole, whole first half of Mark? When Jesus calls His disciples, what does He call them first to do? He's called these twelve men and He says, the first thing I want you to do is be with Me. Mark chapter 3. In Mark chapter 5, you have the bleeding woman. She's been bleeding for 12 years. She's tried everything the world has to offer. And she's, instead of getting better, she's getting worse. What a description of some of us today. We're, we keep trying to reach out for everything the world has to offer. And instead of that filling us, we seem to get more and more empty. And the woman just says, enough of all that. I'm pressing through the crowd. I'm pressing through all the competing voices. And I'm just going to get to Jesus. Mark chapter 4. The disciples are in the storm. They happen to be in a storm that Jesus Himself has led them into. And Jesus says, don't worry about your life. Look at Me. Keep your eyes focused on Me. Mark chapter 7, probably the most powerful of the stories, the Syrophoenician woman. You remember the, the one that was called a dog in this little one sentence parable we talked about. You see, when, when you and I come begging to Jesus because of some difficulty, have you ever been there? And you're begging Him to change or to do something. And what it feels like is a stiff arm. It feels like the door is double bolted. You just can't get through. What does He say? What do you do at that point? You keep coming to Jesus. You keep focused on Him. You see, the reason you would focus in on that is given to us in this text in verse 31 and again in chapter 9, verse 1. The reason that Jesus is the central focus for us is that He is the one who's ultimately faced suffering, rejection, death, and, and He rose again. Jesus is the one who has come out on the other side. Jesus has defeated death. Jesus has unlocked the gates of hell from the inside. 
His resurrection ushered in the kingdom of God in this incredible power. And the power is that you no longer are held sway by the things of the world, the things that are capturing your heart, the things that you have this unsatiable appetite for. Now that you've seen the risen Christ, those things no longer have the same power. They, they become dim. Remember in that old hymn, the things of this world become, what does it say? Strangely dim. All the things that look so bright and worth having. Now, when I've seen the risen Christ, when I know that even death doesn't have to scare me anymore because He's come out of the other side and I'm following Him so I know when I die, I'm going to come out on the other side, then all the things that I've been captured by in the world now are dimming because I have Christ in my sights. They no longer exercise power. Paul says it this way in 2 Corinthians 4, We do not lose heart, though outwardly we are wasting away. Our inner man is being renewed day by day, for our light and momentary affliction is producing for us all an eternal weight beyond all comparison. We fix our eyes not on what is seen, Not on the offerings of this world. Those things have lost power over us because we fixed our eyes on what is unseen. You see, when our minds are focused on Christ, His glory, His weightiness, it it, it becomes like a magnet. He's the center now of all of our being. And He pulls us all the way through any difficult path that we may be on. So when we're thinking about discipleship, the first thing we have to have in our mind is who is Jesus and what has He done? And we have to remember that over and over and over again. So if you're facing disappointment, despair, job loss, death, Christ is enough to bring you through those things. Nothing else is. That's point number one. We are called to walk a difficult path. That's clear. But the way through that difficult path is to have our eyes focused on something greater. Greg Bebb mentioned it in his prayer. When a woman is going to give birth. Uh, you, you probably heard this. Bill Cosby said, for men who don't understand the pain of it. This is what he says you should do. Okay, men, grab your upper lip and pull it over your head. That's what it feels like. And I don't know if you've had a child, but my wife has. And you know what? When you're looking at her and you go, honey, it's okay. That's not the face that's going to motivate her to get you through. She wants to pinch your head right off. And so you don't say things like that. You say, think of the baby. Think of the child. You're going to be holding the child. You think of something bigger, something beyond yourself. And Jesus is saying, I'm beyond everything. I'm the greatest thing you could behold. Look at my glorious splendor. And when you have that in mind, when you're captured by that, then as difficult as the things are in this world, and I don't want to minimize them, but He becomes a magnet 
that pulls you through those times in your life. Two things that if we're going to be disciples, we're not just going to say the right words, we're going to go the right way. We're going to have to deny ourselves, take up our cross and follow. So two things. We have to get a new identity. We have to get a new agenda. You know, it's not surprising that if you're a follower of Christ, the first thing you have to do is say no to yourself. I mean, that's not really that surprising. But I want you to listen closely because I don't think Jesus is just asking you and I to exercise some self-denial. Like, well, now that I'm a Christian, I stop watching that. Or I don't do that anymore. I don't say that anymore. I'm not suggesting those are bad. But I don't think that's really what he's talking about. I don't think he's just talking about self-denial, giving up something, practicing something. I think he's saying something else. You must deny yourself. You must deny your being. I mean, every culture has set up some kind of standard to say, when you have that, you have status. You have identity. You have purpose. And that's true for every culture. And it's true for you. The world has established, your world has established, this is how you can have an identity if you're in ninth grade and you're in high school. This is how you can have your identity if you're a senior at UNCW. This is how you have your identity if you're a mother or a career person or anything else. These are the, these are the ways that you would have your identity. And whatever those things are that, that claw out at you and say, when you get those things, then you'll have arrived. Jesus is saying, you must deny that. You must let go of that. They don't provide any weight or substance. See, if you lived in a traditional culture, it would be marriage or family. You've arrived when you've gotten married or you've arrived when you've had children. If you lived in a very individualistic culture, it might be your career or position. Well, you know, I guess you haven't met me yet. You don't know who I am. And you've arrived. You've got some position. It's giving you some kind of status. You think wrongly, it's giving me weight. People know who I am. If you're in a materialistic culture, if you have the right home, the right car, sadly, if you have the right jewelry or golf clubs, somehow that gives you status. If you grew up in an academic environment, if you have the right degree, if you have certain letters behind your name, if you have a a book with your name on it. Now, now their, their status. If you grew up in a religious atmosphere, if you served in the church, if you got baptized, if you were preaching from a pulpit, whoa, now you've arrived. Everybody gets to look at you. Everybody knows who you are. You have status. You have stature. You have importance. And God's saying those things are like chaff. They're going to burn up and just blow away. Hook yourself onto something that lasts forever. Me. 
So we're not talking about just letting go of a few things. We're talking about having a whole new identity. See, as a disciple, your, your identity is no longer gain based. I've done something, I've accomplished something, and therefore I've got some status back. It's not gain based in any way, it's grace based. You only have status because Jesus Christ has assigned you a status. You will not ever earn a status. You remember in Mark chapter 15, Jesus, this is, these are the last recorded words for Jesus in the book of Mark while he's still alive, before his resurrection. He quotes Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You see, up until this point, Jesus has been using the term Father when he's referred to God. Or maybe Abba which most of you would know is of a more endearing term like daddy. And it's actually sort of irritated some of the people in the crowd, some of the religious types. And here for the very first time, he says, my God, what, what was happening on the cross that he would say that? Jesus was losing his identity as a son of God. When the sins of Paul Phillips were being poured out on Christ, he, he lost his identity of his, as a son. And what did that open a doorway for me? Paul, now because of that, you can be called a son. You can be called a daughter of the most living God. I've assigned you a new identity. I'm a son of God. Now, whether I'm a preacher or a father or anything else, those things are dim compared to being a son of God. Now, that lasts forever. And so you and I as disciples, we have to let go of whatever's giving us an identity and hang on to Christ. The Apostle Paul caught a hold of this in Philippians 3. You remember Paul was trying so hard not to set himself up as somebody great. I mean, in the world, he had some status in different areas. And he says this in Philippians 3, whatever was to my profit, you know, you know, all my religious sacrifices, all of my background, all of my keeping the traditions. And look, I kept the traditions way better than any of you all. He says all of that stuff, if we sweep all of that stuff together, I, I consider that stuff a loss for the sake of Christ. What is more? N not just those things. Now I can consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ for whose sake I have lost all things. See, he's lost all identification with the world. He no longer cares if you call him a Pharisee. He never, no longer cares if you call him a Roman citizen. He no longer cares about any of those status symbols that he had hooked his, tra his wagon to. They weren't going anywhere. Now he's been given a status. And he says, for me to live is Christ. That's it. I don't have any other status. I just have Christ. 
and to die, it's just all gain. No loss. I'm, I'm not losing anything by leaving this world. It's just all gain. And see, some of us, some of us, I'm so afraid that we think, oh, if, if I died, what a loss. I would lose what? What would you lose? I would lose the chance of getting married. I, I'd lose the chance of, of having a son or a daughter. I'd lose a chance of, of doing something I've always wanted to do. Those things don't matter. Not compared to the surpassing greatness of Christ. I wish I could say it better than that. C.S. Lewis says this on his commentary on this passage. It's when I turn to Christ, when I give up myself to his personality, that I first begin to have a real personality. There must be a real giving up of the self. Your real new self will not come as long as you are looking for it. It will only come when you are looking for him. Are you looking for and at Jesus Christ? You you see, something is exercising power in your life right now. And I wonder if you even know what it is. It is the center of gravity for your life, religious traditions or relativity. Boats or boyfriends, titles or academic honors, homes or cars, political affiliation or popularity, health or beauty, children or freedom, 401ks or jewelry, nudity or fashion, happiness or sacrifice. You see, if any of those things are the things that you're gaining your identity from, you don't possess them. They possess you. And they're a prison. Sweeping all of those things together, they have no weight. And when the wind blows, you just easily float away. Jesus Christ is the only weight this world has ever seen. Jesus Christ walked on the earth, hung on a cross, provided for you the one thing you could never provide for yourself. Even if you had the whole world to offer. And it's Jesus' worldwide plan to spread His grace through the suffering of His disciples. That's His plan. So we have to get a new identity. You see, if your identity is wrapped around a person or it's wrapped around a thing, you're not going to lose that. You're not going to suffer. You have to get a new agenda. If you look back in uh, chapter 8, verse 31 through 33, we talked about this last week where Peter takes Jesus aside and rebukes him. And I think there's at least two mistakes Peter makes here. Well, one, he rebukes Jesus. I suggest that's just a pretty big mistake right out of the gate. But that's not one of the ones I want to talk about. I think Peter's one of his mistakes is that he has an agenda. 
He comes to Jesus. I don't know if you can imagine this. So try hard. Don't hurt yourself. All right. If it's going to hurt, I don't want anybody to hurt themselves. But just try to imagine this for a moment. Somebody comes to Jesus and already has a plan on what their life following him is going to look like. Can you imagine somebody doing that? Somebody would actually come to Jesus and say, yes, Jesus, you're the Savior, and this is how I'd like for you to have my world fold out. I can't imagine somebody doing like, something like that. Can you? But that's exactly what Peter did. He comes to Jesus and said, well, yes, I recognize you. And now, Jesus, can you recognize the way I'd like for you to form my life? And Peter gets rebuked for that. He has an agenda. He's not really looking for someone to follow. He's looking for somebody to use. And he's trying to use Jesus to get what he really wants in his life. And, oh, I pray that's not you. So Peter has to get a new agenda. Peter has to understand, secondly, that Jesus isn't planning on using worldly measures to accomplish any spiritual outcome. Peter had in mind, finally, we get to go back to the throne. We're going to put a king on a throne. And we're going to have power. And we're going to have political persuasion. We're going to have money. And, and, and those are the ways God is planning on using to forward a spiritual agenda in Peter's mind. And Jesus says, I'm not planning on using those things. I don't need those things. Those fight battles in this arena. I'm trying to fight a spiritual battle and the throne I'm going to is a cross. Not a wooden chair. And and I'm so afraid that the church today is trying its best to, to grab hold of the ways of the world and pull them into the church and say, this must be the way people should respond. And so not by accident did I use having comfortable chairs with cup holders and coffee out front. I mean, it's working for Starbucks. Why don't we have that? And Jesus just couldn't be any more clear. If, if you really want to have an effect on eternity, if you want to be fighting real spiritual battles, the way that's going to happen, because of the, it's the way He has designed, is through my suffering and your suffering. That's the design. There's no question about it. It's as plain as it could be. It's not through power. It's not through getting the right person as the president. It's not through getting your Supreme Court all in order. It's not through you giving enough money to to make something happen. It's not through fun. It's not through something dynamic. It's not through something practical. It's through suffering. That's what he's saying. I don't think this is a very seeker-friendly message. I mean, I don't think this is right out of the gate kind of information that you typically get. 
And yet, this is right, right here when Peter gets it. You're the Christ. Instead of just comfortably moving along, Jesus just goes for the heart. I'm not going your way, Peter. You can go my way. Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, you remember what he says? Father, please, if there's any other way, I mean, my flesh is telling me I'd really rather go another way. And in your text probably has a semicolon. If you would take this cup from me. Semicolon. Silence. And then Jesus says, not, not my agenda. I'm not, I'm not here for my will. I'm just here for yours. And if that agenda includes going to a cross and having my blood poured out, if that agenda includes having my body ripped into tiny little crumbs, so that one little crumb, one little crumb can feed the whole world. Do you have your eyes focused on this? Is this what you're seeing in your pain? Do you see Christ saying, I'm doing it all for you. I'm giving you my identity. I'm taking on your identity so that you can have mine. If you and I as a church, as a a people of God, if we want to spread this out, if we want everyone to see it, you know what's going to have to happen? Your life is going to have to look like Christ's. You're going to have to be torn, maybe, piece by piece. Giving up one thing after another. So that other people would experience the eternal weight of glory in their own lives. Let me pray for us. Lord, before we come to this table, this is a table for stumbling, people who are stumbling. I mean, what what better reminder of the sacrifice that you made for us? But this is a table for people who are willing to take up the right way. For, for people who just say, oh yes, I, I say the right things. This is not the place for those people. So I pray, Lord, that, that you would guard against anybody coming to the table. That's a fake. 
Oh, fallen, come. But fakes, people who want a wide and easy highway, this isn't the right way. Lord, some of us are just so captured, we don't even know that we're captured. And it's going to take a real work of the Holy Spirit, as it did in Peter's life, as it did in mine, to see the eternal weight that's offered right here, right now, on this table. May we as believers come streaming forth, trusting that You have gone all the way through death and You have opened up the gates of hell so that we might not have to live there and we can come into Your eternal and holy presence. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Take a moment to consider quietly as the elders come forward. You're going to have to make your way up here. And I'd like to cons- for you to consider your way. As you take one step and then another, consider the way of your life. Consider if this is the magnet. When your heart's prepared, you come forward and receive.